Well, we're going to have our main Bible reading, which is in Esther 2. If you were here last week, you'll remember um, we have met King Ahasuerus, and he has got rid of his queen because she refused to come before him. One of the things we saw last week was his extravagant parties and uh, over-the-top reliance on his foolish advisers. So we pick it up in chapter 2, where King Harrius is in need of a second queen. It says this, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young women, woman who pleases the queen king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away from Jecoyaniah, king with Jecoyaniah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadessah, that is, Esther, the daughter of its uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel, in the custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetic and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus after being twelve months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again, unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. 
When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the province and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Well, in a moment, we're going to have a look at that passage, but before we do, there's just a few things to mention. The first is, at the end of the sermon, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things we've been thinking about. So I mention that now so you know it's coming up and you can be thinking of what questions you might like to ask. Another thing to mention is the sermon outline is in your service sheet, which you can use if it's helpful or ignore if not. And then finally, let's ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together and opportunity to reflect on your word. We thank you how uh, we're beginning to see in the book of Esther that although you're not mentioned explicitly, that you're in control of the events of the, that are taking place. We pray, Lord, as we further explore this, this week and over the weeks to come, we might understand that you are the God who is involved in your creation, the creation that you brought into existence, the one that you sustain, and the one you are bringing to its full purpose. Amen. Well, a king's marriage is not merely about finding love. Typically, a king's marriage would involve some sort of power play, or there'd be a political element to it. So, for example, if two nations have been at war, for as long as anyone can remember, it could be the marriage between the king of one nation and the princess of another nation that brings long-term peace. A king's marriage is strategic as much as it's about falling in love. Well, actually, probably more so. Yet in our chapter, Esther 2, King Ahasuerus has a pretty superficial criteria by which he will choose his new queen. She must be pretty, 
and pleasing. Or to put it crudely, good in bed. We're in Esther chapter 2, and the narrator continues his ridicule of the king of the whole known world. The first verse shows that the king has calmed down after the events that took place in chapter 1. But he finds himself without a queen. As one commentator puts it, he may be king of a vast empire, but he's prisoner of his own laws. And once again, the king's advisors step in and set up what is effectively a beauty contest in order to find a new queen. Now it's at this point that we're introduced to two new characters. First Mordecai and then Esther. Now what's worth looking out for as you read your way through the Bible is when names are used and when names are left out. So here, Mordecai is named and quite a bit of detail is given about him. Now he didn't really need to be named. He could have been addressed as Esther's guardian and that would have been enough. But the fact that he is named means his presence is significant. You see this elsewhere in the Bible. A good example of this is Moses. You know when he's born, his mum is just referred to as a Levite woman. His sister is never named, nor is Pharaoh or Pharaoh's daughter. The only character named in that account is Moses. And this is intended to draw our attention to him as being the one of significance. So the fact that Mordecai is named infers he will play more than a bit part in this account. Also notice his lineage in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susan's citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now that doesn't mean anything yet, but that's going to become significant when we look at Esther 3 next week. Mordecai was among the captives when the Babylonians had carried away some of the people from Judah at the exile. So this explains why Mordecai, the Jew, has found himself in this situation. The account goes on. Esther has lost her parents and Mordecai is her cousin. Presumably Mordecai is the older of the two and Mordecai takes her as his own daughter. Now many commentators are critical of Mordecai for what's about to happen to Esther. They think he could have stopped her being taken by the king. But let's consider this in a bit more detail. Back in verse 3, we see that the plan is that officers are appointed to gather all the beautiful young virgins. Then in verse 8 we read, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. 
Notice how Esther or Mordecai's role in all this is completely passive. This is happening. Firstly, on the account of Esther's beauty. And secondly, the edict has been made. And the officers will take all those that fit the criteria. There's nothing that either Esther nor Mordecai could have done to avoid this. However, Mordecai does do what little he can. First, he advises Esther to keep it to herself that she's a Jew. And then secondly, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. As soon as Esther arrives, immediately she makes an impression upon Hegai, who moves her to the best place in the harem. Now what the narrator does next demonstrates his great respect for Esther. After all, she's the star of the account. So in verses 12 to 14, the narrator speaks about the process by which the king chooses his new king. But he describes this generally. This is what happened to the women. Then having outlined what happens generally, the narrator describes what happened when Esther was requested by the king. And what he manages to achieve by doing this is provide us with the realism of the events. That is to say, when he speaks what happens to the women in general, he uses the possible euphemism to go in. So have a look. Verse 12. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus. Or verse 13. When the young women went in to the king in this way. Or verse 14. In the evening she would go in. And at the end of verse 14, she would not go in to the king again. And this frequent repeated use of the phrase to go in has taken many to believe that they would do more than merely talk. Which isn't hard to believe. After all, this is described as the king's harem. And so the narrator now has introduced us to the sensual side of what's taking place. This means that when he turns his focus to Esther, he can leave that aspect to one side, having already established the situation. And in doing so, communicate his high regard for Esther. When Esther's turn does come, she takes the advice of Haggai and only asks for what he suggested. And Esther, having won the favour of all those who saw her, finally also wins the favour of the king. Esther is made queen in place of Vashti. There's another celebration. And the scene has now been set for the account to now further unfold. Apart from one thing, the significance of Mordecai isn't only in the fact that he's Esther's cousin. As we've said already, he will play an important part in his own right. Let's just step back and think how things have unfolded so far. Queen Vashti has been banished. 
This has led to a search for a replacement, the criteria being beauty. Esther is beyond beautiful. So she's taken to the king. Mordecai is concerned for his cousin, and this places him at the king's gate. Had none of these events happened, Mordecai wouldn't have been at the king's gate, and he wouldn't have overheard the plots by Bigthan and Teresh. Mordecai then goes and tells Esther, who tells the king. But note, Esther attributes the information not as her own, but as something that Mordecai has seen. So it's Mordecai who saves the king. This is then recorded in the book of Chronicles. Already this is quite the list of what we might call coincidence. And yet really this isn't even the start. The real significance of what happens at the end of chapter 2 won't become clear until we get to Esther chapter 6. For now, all we can say is Mordecai has established himself as in the king's favour. And for whatever reason, no reward has been given him for his service. Which is particularly peculiar given the extravagance of the king under normal circumstances. So as we read through the first two chapters, the plot is building, but we still have a way to go before we appreciate the full significance of what's taking place. So as we come to the end of this morning's sermon, it's probably still too early to draw too many conclusions. But maybe we can at least begin to consider the direction that we're heading in. As we observed last week, God still hasn't been mentioned explicitly or otherwise, even though we're now in chapter 2 of the book. But what we have seen is an unknown girl becoming queen to the king of the whole known world. However, at the start of Esther 1, the possibility seemed ridiculous because the king had a queen. But various things happened that left the king without a queen. And then in today's passage, we've seen the ease in which this young girl, Esther, earned the favour of everyone. How could it have been so easy? In the end, she even had favour of the king who went on to make her his queen. Add to this the situation that Mordecai finds himself in, all because he's concerned for his cousin. And we find ourselves asking, how did everything come about almost as if it were planned? Well, the answer is, while God could interrupt history, and while God has changed the way of history through his manipulation of creation, as we see, for example, in the, Esther, uh, in the Exodus, as we read earlier, God also works through history. That is to say, God works out his plan through the events of the people he sustains. His presence is known, despite his apparent absence. It is no accident that Esther has become a queen, 
In fact, nothing has happened that hasn't been worked out by the God of creation. But as we see, as we go on further, Esther is unaware of all this. That is to say, she will not presume upon God's providence. It's only after the events have reached their full conclusion that we can consider the significance of what took place. But even in this early stage, I've probably said too much. However, it does have something to teach us, even at this early stage. We can be confident in God's providence and how God sustains us. But it isn't appropriate for us to presume upon God's providence. The role we play, just as Esther does, is to trust God and remain faithful. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the remarkable book of Esther and what takes place in it. As we reflect on these things, help us to remember um, that Esther was just, in many respects, just getting along with her daily life. And yet, as she did that, you were fulfilling your plan to save your people. I pray, Lord, as we reflect on these things, we might see some similarities to uh, how we live now as we continue to put our confidence in you, knowing that you are uh, raising up a people that you will keep for yourself for eternity. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the beginning there would be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things we've been thinking about. The opportunity has arrived, and I'll give you a few moments to have a think. Um, interestingly, yeah, so I think my commentator that I was reading, um, so just to repeat the question, um, so we said that the commentators were harsh with Mordecai, expecting him to help Esther. What did they expect him to do? Um, well, my commentator actually thought he he couldn't have done anything, uh, but just referenced other commentators that said they thought they were harsh. But I'm not sure, yeah, because I think, I mean, ultimately, it's very hard to know what they could have done. Um, you know, this is a king who is very powerful and does as he pleases. An edict's been made, um, apart from running away, which probably wouldn't have been very particularly realistic. Um, yeah, it's hard to know what. Nikki? Yeah, interesting. So, um, just to repeat that for the recording, so we have different people in the Bible who do different things. So there's Daniel, who obviously refuses to eat meat. Uh, did you give another example? Yes, uh, well, Daniel's full of them, yeah. So he refused to bow, bow down to idols, and obviously got the... Um, for, uh, Daniel's in the lion's den as well, where he prayed, where he was told not to pray, or only to pray to the king. Um, whereas Esther does maybe what she shouldn't have done, but therefore God used it regardless. And I think, I mean, I do think it's quite fascinating 
the complexity of life. You know, life is not simple and you can get caught up in doing something that's not godly. Um, not because you've set out to do something that isn't godly, but because that's the nature of the fallen world that we live in. Um, so, and I think within the biblical characters, you get the full breadth. I mean, I, I remember once we did um, the book of Hosea with someone, and in the book of Hosea, God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute so that she'll be unfaithful and that she'll leave him, which is obviously totally inappropriate for God's, one of God's people, and yet the thing that God's asked him to, asked him to do. Um, but obviously the purpose behind that was to play out what God's people had done to um, God because they'd not remained faithful. So it's, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I guess, I mean, what the other thing, I guess, is the question is not one of ethics in the point of, oh, you know, I mean, clearly we shouldn't follow Esther's example in that we shouldn't marry queen, marry kings because of our beauty or, or whatever that would look like. I mean, it's hard to know how I'd do that in my day-to-day -day life. Um, so we're not taking them as an ethical example. Um, but then at the same time, I guess we're not, in one sense, we're not really asking the question, was Esther wrong or right? Because it's something that she was passive in and happened to her. And then God used what happened to her. Well, we don't know yet, or you probably do know because you've read the book before, but I'll not spoil it yet. So there is a complexity there that I think, yeah, we've got, we can allow to simmer. Uh, time for one more. Yes. Thank you, that's really helpful. I do believe that sometimes in the Western culture we can become quite naive because, yeah, we don't experience this sort of thing. And actually the world is a lot more diverse than I think we give it credit for. Interestingly, I don't know whether the commentator does mention in verse uh, 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Um, the commentator there does make a parallel between Dave, Daniel, the, in the same way that he didn't wasn't extravagant in as far as he didn't eat the meat. She doesn't take on more, and you know that sort of thing. But yeah, thank you. It was a really helpful comment. Okay, let's stop there. Um, we're going to sing our next song, which is Meekness and Majesty, and then we'll share a reflection. Does everyone, anyone know Meekness and Majesty? It's an old song, yeah? Enough people know it. Good, let's not worry about them.